This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. A pleasure to welcome back to the program historian David Fisk. How you doing, David? Oh, I'm very good, thank you. David has been on our program, I think, a couple of times. Historian from Boston Spa. He has a new book out called Solomon Northup's Kindred, The Kidnapping of Free Citizens Before the Civil War. David Fisk co-authored a biography of Solomon Northup called Solomon Northup, The Complete Story of the Author of Twelve Years a Slave, and previously published another book on Northup. Northup's story is well known. It was the basis of the Oscar-winning movie, Twelve Years a Slave. Your new book, David, chronicles that what happened to Northup happened to other free African Americans before the Civil War, a series of kidnappings. Can you tell us about that? Right. Well, uh, a lot of people that see Twelve Years a Slave probably think it's terrible that uh, a free person was kidnapped and sold as a slave. But it was not at all unusual uh, in those days. There were a number of reasons that it would happen. Of course, there were always uh, people out there that are looking to make a quick buck by swindling other people. Uh, so you had, you know, a motivation there of people that wanted to uh, uh, get money by selling somebody into slavery. And it happened some even in colonial times. Uh, but uh, the United States Constitution, when it was adopted, had a clause that provided that uh, states were obligated to return uh, runaway slaves to their original owners in another state, uh, which, as you can guess, would be something that was put in uh, to uh, make the southern states, the slave states, uh, more interested in uh, adopting the Constitution. Uh, that meant that uh, <clears throat> a kidnapper uh, could say someone was actually a runaway slave, and usually the requirements for identification were very lax, just a basic uh, physical description which could you know, match a number of people. Um, and uh, if a <clears throat> person of color was taken into a slave state, uh, their word wasn't, you know, always taken that seriously, although there were exceptions because I found that there were some mayors of southern cities that would contact people in the north and say, look, we've got this guy down here. Somebody's trying to sell him as a slave, but he keeps saying he's free and we'd like to check on it. So uh, there were people in the south that would try to uh, set things straight. But there were other things that... Uh, added to the profitability for one thing of kidnapping because in 1808 the US Congress banned the importation of slaves into the United States and that put pressure on the supply of slaves uh, which were wanted very badly in the developing southern states things like mm -hmm. the invention of the cotton gin and the adoption of the cotton gin uh, had made the cotton industry a much bigger deal in the Deep South, and they needed uh, labor uh, to work the cotton fields, and they were used to using slave labor. So consequently, with no more new slaves coming into the country, the value of whatever slaves were already here went up, which made it something that people could speculate in 
and you know buy and sell slaves and of course kidnappers could uh kidnap someone and not really have to pay for for that person the way a slave trader might and be able to make quite a bit of money and on top of it there are laws that uh for returning fugitive slaves there was the first one was passed in 1793 and then it was uh beefed up years later in 1850 the fugitive slave act that people are probably most familiar with uh and again there was uh <clears throat> uh not that much uh legal redress that a person who was accused of being a runaway slave had in the courts and the 1850 law even uh provided that the person accused of being a runaway could not even appear in court uh on his own behalf even mm. in the even in the free states so, so <clears throat> as you can imagine it was pretty uh relatively easy for a kidnapper and when i say kidnapper actually they a lot of times they would just trick somebody into going away that's what happened to Solomon Northup he was lured away from Saratoga Springs with the promise of some employment and then he ended up getting sold uh <clears throat> as a slave in Washington DC Mhm. And uh and uh the uh opinion at the time was, you know, not everybody was uh uh that concerned about the rights of African Americans. There was a certain amount of uh prejudice against uh people of African descent just the same way that there was prejudice against uh Native Americans. And in uh, 1857, the Supreme Court decided a case that people probably heard of called Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. And their decision in that case basically said that uh, no one of African descent had any rights uh, in the United States under the, under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So for anybody that had been kind of on the fence about the rights of African Americans that kind of sealed it because they said well even the Supreme Court says they uh they're not citizens and they have no rights here at least under the federal federal court system we're talking uh, with uh, so, David Fisk about his new book uh, Solomon Northup's Kindred how about an example uh David uh Mary Underhill uh was uh, a victim of this uh kidnapping or being uh, fooled into uh, going to a slave state and she's also from New York state right she was uh, she lived in New York City and she was a servant in a private household and was a free woman uh in November 1819 a man named Joseph Pulford uh talked to her and said that if she was willing to leave New York he knew where he could get a position for her that would pay $100 a year which doesn't sound like much now but in those days $100 a year was a pretty good pretty good annual salary. Uh so she said that she would be willing to do that and he told her, "Well, get your things together to leave and uh I want you to meet me on Sunday night at this certain spot and you know, be there with your things all packed and ready to go." Uh so Sunday came and she showed up. Uh well, in the meantime, he uh talked to a captain of a brig that was docked in New York City. and asked him if he wanted to uh was interested in buying any slaves cuz he could could get some and 
the captain said he might be interested, but actually the captain talked to some other people, and eventually a New York City constable was brought in who went undercover, and he met with uh, Joseph Pulford and said he was interested in uh, in uh, buying some slaves because he had a ship that was almost loaded and he needed a few more people, uh, and uh, he'd like to, 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 to buy somebody that might be available. So Pulford said, well, I have one woman that's ready and waiting right now, and I probably can get some more before the end of the night if you want. So the constable said, well, can you show me the woman? because I don't want to buy a pig and a poke. And they kind of had an argument because Pulford was hoping to get the money before he had to show, you know, the woman that he had uh, already lined up to go away. Mm-hmm. And they had an argument in the street, but anyway, eventually Pulford said, okay, I'll, I'll take it to where she is. So he went over. And uh, <clears throat> Pulford, in the meantime, also had told the woman that uh, changed the story a little bit, and he told her, instead of her going away, he was going to pretend to sell her as a slave to the captain of the boat, and that once she got on the ship, she should jump off and run away, and then later he would find her and split the money with her. Uh, And apparently she must have been somewhat agreeable to that because she, Mm. you know, uh, met him at at the place that they agreed to on Sunday. So the constable and Pulford went over, found the woman. The constable was trying to get uh, Pulford to give him a receipt for the money because he knew that could be used as evidence. And Pulford, of course, did not want to give a receipt. And anyway, eventually they had an argument. The constable finally took him into custody and took both Pulford and Mary Underhill over to the uh, uh, police station. And uh, Pulford was arrested. There was a trial. And the trial was uh, overseen by the mayor of New York City. They used to do criminal cases in those days. Uh, his name was uh, Cadwallader D. Colden, a man that had uh, established anti-slavery leanings already. Uh, and he told the jury that Mary Underhill's testimony in the case uh, was unimpeachable, and he did point out that you know they may the jury may have opinions about slavery, but they should not let that inter- let enter into the trial. They should just, uh, based on the evidence that was introduced. Mm. Uh, so they found uh, Pulford guilty, and Colden decided to sentence him right away and gave him the maximum under the law at that time, which was 14 years of hard labor in state prison. And he also said uh, that he wished that they had a a death penalty available to him because he thought that was really warranted in this case. Uh, When the sentence was announced, Pulford's sister, who was in the courtroom, uh, shrieked and fainted when she heard uh, the severity of the sentence. And uh, I couldn't find out for sure if Pulford served or not, but I never found anything saying they didn't. So as far as I know, he... He did his 14 years, and uh, uh, the mayor, Mayor Colden, had told him that not to expect any, mm-hmm. any. Uh, what happened to Mary? Time off. Uh, that I don't. I don't know. This is 18. 
19. And sometimes it's hard to track uh, people back in those early days in New York State uh, because uh, a lot of record taking wasn't wasn't done. So uh, I don't know. Uh, as far as I know, she went back to her to her uh, normal life working for the family that she worked for. Now, both uh, Mary Underhill and Solomon Northup uh, were in New York State, but you write that the victims of these kidnappings uh, came from a, a wide variety of, of states in the Union. And uh, you have another example of a, a man named Eli Terry from Indiana. Right. Uh, yeah, they, they were. I found examples from... Uh, states all over the place, not not just uh, free states either, but even in uh, slave states, there would be free uh, free blacks that were living there that would be kidnapped as well. But Eli Terry, although he has the same name as a man from Connecticut who uh, was a clockmaker, he wasn't connected with him. Uh, but he lived near <clears throat> Indianapolis, and he had a chance. Uh, to go uh, take an assignment with this man uh, that lived near him to take some horses to Missouri to be sold. And then the agreement was that Terry was going to work for uh, this man, James Carter, um, for about a year once they got to Missouri, and then they would come home. So they went, and they took care of the horses, and as payment, Carter gave Eli Terry a horse, which was probably, you know, I guess not bad earnings for a, for about a year's worth of labor in those days. And they started to ride back to Indiana. But they made a detour, and Eli Terry noticed that they were going in the wrong direction. He pointed out to Carter, who also had his son with him on this trip, and he said, well, I know we're going the wrong way, but I wanted to go visit my brother. And they stopped where the brother was supposed to be living and found out that he wasn't there, at least according to, to Carter. So, and so I found out he's in Texas now, so they headed to Texas. And as they got uh, close to Texas, Carter told Terry, he says, you know, this is uh, uh, slave territory and things are kind of dicey, so the best thing would be for you to just pretend that you're my slave while we're down here because then there won't be as many questions asked about why you're traveling with me. Uh, and apparently Terry did that. So they got near to a town called Clarksville, Texas, and Carter and his son went into town, and they came back a while later, and they took all the horses, including the one that he had given to Eli Terry, and left. And a short while later, a man came out from Clarksville uh, and found Terry and said, I just bought you uh, from that man, so come with me now because you're my slave. Mm. So Terry realized that he had been, he had been duped. Uh, <clears throat> Terry apparently protested that he was free, but nobody really would listen to him much. Uh, he tried to escape and run away a couple times, but apparently was not successful. So people back in Indiana didn't know what had happened to him, and they kind of tried to find out, but they couldn't find out much. But years later, a man who was an attorney from 
Indiana, was doing business in New Orleans, and he happened to be talking to somebody from Clarksville, Texas, who told him about this man who said he was free, but he was a slave in Clarksville that had come from Indiana. And he realized that this probably was the missing Eli Terry. Mm. So he went back to Indiana, told some other people about it, and some of the uh, people in the Quaker community especially helped to raise money. And the attorney, as well as uh, two other men who knew Eli Terry personally, made the long trip to uh, Texas, and late in the year, in uh, 1849, they got down to Texas uh, early in 1850. So by this time, Terry had been a slave for uh, six years or so. Uh, they were lucky that they found some people there that were friendly to them, and they told them that the man they, they were looking for was known as Jack down there, mm -hmm. because this was... Uh, Something happened a lot. Somebody who uh, had bought a kidnapped slave or who was selling a kidnapped slave would give them a different name, mm -hmm. make it harder for their friends to track them down. And that happened with Solomon Northup, too, because he was given the name Platt once when he was a slave. So anyway, so they knew that Jack was the person that they knew as Eli Terry. And they went to court, and there was a hearing. And the judge said, based on... Uh, uh, his questioning of Terry, and also the fact that he asked Terry to uh, look around the courtroom and see if he recognized anyone from Indiana. And Terry saw one of the men and said, oh, there's Mr. Uh, Harrison. He knows I'm a free man. Mm -hmm. uh, so the judge was convinced, and he said, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's free, but there was a little bit of a complication because Terry had just been sold to a man, and the one he had, who had sold him was out of town on business, so they had to wait a week because they wanted to hear from, from him because uh, he had some involvement with it. Hmm. So the people from Indiana had to hang around for a week, and they were a little bit worried because some people were very uh, opposed what they were trying to do, and there were some people that pointed out a tree in town and said, see that tree there? We've already hung six people from that tree. So they felt a little bit threatened, but luckily nothing really happened. Mm -hmm. And then West came back, and he came to court and kind of spouted off, but uh, but he didn't really add anything to the to the evidence other than just arguing. Mm -hmm. So the judge declared that uh, uh, Eli Terry, who, as I say, there was known as Jack, was a free man. He was not obligated to be a slave anymore, and he could leave any time. Mm -hmm. And uh, West threatened to appeal the case to a higher court, but one of the men from Indiana pointed out that, well, if he did that and he lost, then they were going to sue him for the cost of the, uh, for court costs, as well as sue him for all the pain and suffering that Eli Terry had endured by having been his slave for several years. Mm -hmm. And they said that if he would not appeal the case, they would have Eli Terry sign a statement saying that he, you know, waived any rights to sue. So consequently, West decided not to uh, appeal the case, and the three men, along with Eli Terry, 
went back to Indiana, and Terry went back to live with his father and uh, apparently led a pretty uh, successful life after that. Mm -hmm. We're talking with David Fisk, author of Solomon Northup's Kindred. And I do want to bring this up, uh, David. You've uh, told us this very detailed story about uh, Eli Terry and also Mary Underhill. You've done a lot of research. And the well-known PBS host and African-American studies professor, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., has endorsed your new book. He's uh, one of the people you quote, I think, on the on the cover, probably, saying, uh, David Fisk is, uh, quote, an historian with astounding research skills honed by years of tracking down every available clue about the legendary author of 12 Years a Slave, unquote. That's the work that you did on uh, Solomon uh, Northup. Uh, have you... Uh, I would say maybe it's obvious, maybe not. You've talked to, to Gates, or have you uh, met him? You must be pleased with his attention. Right. No, he's been very kind. Uh, we He communicates me with some by by email. And as you may know, he was the uh, historical consultant on the 12 Years a Slave film. And he first had contacted me through one of his research assistants, uh, with some questions about Solomon Northup because he uh, he uh, wrote up some historical material relating to Northup in connection with uh, promoting the film, as did I. Uh, uh, so we've been in touch a little bit. He has a, a book coming out in May that's an <clears throat> edition of 12 Years a Slave, with various annotations and extra material added to uh, articles and so forth uh, by scholars and others that relate to Salma Northup that will be published as a <clears throat> Norton Critical Editions by Norton Publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, uh, and he <clears throat> consulted me a little bit in, uh, in connection with that, and I, mm -hmm. I, made a couple of suggestions here and there um, that okay. I think are going, to, are going to be included in the, in that book when it comes out. So, uh, uh, so we're in touch a little bit and, uh, he's, he's pretty, pretty busy. As you probably know, he has that, uh, well, you mentioned he has the finding your roots, uh, program on, on PBS and right. I'm sure other projects he works on. And before uh, I want to make sure we get uh, this in as well, but one of the points you make uh, in the book is that in addition to disrupting, even ruining the lives of the kidnap victims, the practice of kidnapping added to the sectional friction uh, that resulted in the in the Civil War. Right. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, a lot of uh, white people didn't worry that much about the rights of African Americans, and they weren't that worried about slavery in some cases. But the, the idea that somebody who was free and not supposed to be a slave could be tricked or kidnapped and then sold as a slave uh, really would irk them. So maybe they hadn't thought about it before, but they said, well, if this could happen to a free person, then slavery really is a bad thing because it enables all this. Uh, so that probably... <clears throat> brought some people into the anti-slavery camp that otherwise wouldn't have thought that much about it. 
But then it was also uh, <clears throat> a bone of contention in the slave states because they're like, well, uh, you know, in the cases where they had uh, provided some uh, basic assistance to getting a, a kidnapped person freed, they would say, well, look, we helped get this kidnapped guy free that wasn't supposed to be a slave, but up there in the north, you won't return our slaves that run away. That's our property. And there's a number of cases where uh, um, this is pointed out, and even in the Eli Terry case, uh, the local newspaper, um, first of all, accused uh, Terry of having been involved in his uh, kidnapping uh, and said that he had never told anybody that he was free and he, you know, pretended to be a slave or whatever, which really wasn't wasn't the case, but that was what they said. And they also said later on, about a year after he had been freed, that he really had been part of the plot and had allowed himself to be kidnapped with the idea of getting, getting some of the money. Uh, but they also made the point that, well, we we let him go, even though you know the case in court could have been dragged on longer. But instead, we let him go. We were nice, and yet the Northerners will not return our runaway slaves to us. Mm-hmm. So this point was made sometimes uh, by uh, people in the South, where there had been a kidnapped person that was returned. They would say, "Well, we did our part, but the Northern states are not obeying the law." And they're not returning our fugitive slaves to us the way they should. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, kidnapping has been largely overlooked by by scholars, uh, you know, in, until the Solomon Northrop book and, and so forth. But what, why is it uh, has it been difficult to, to research? Well, it's just one of those forgotten things that uh, hadn't been looked into that much. There was one book back in the '90s by a woman named Carol Wilson called Freedom at Risk that dealt with it somewhat. And she uh, made reference to a number of uh, people that kidnapped probably, I think, around 60 or 67, somewhere in that range. Uh, But I found, except for uh, two or three people, I found another 40-plus cases that are in my book. There was, uh, in 1968, when the 12 Years of Slave book was kind of resurrected by Louisiana State University Press, mm-hmm. one of the editors was a professor named Joseph Logston, and he spoke in uh, at Union College a number of years ago uh, when they did an exhibition about Solomon Northup, and he mentioned during his talk that at the time he had undertaken the project in 1968 to republish 12 Years a Slave, that he had thought that kidnapping was a rare occurrence, but that he had found out, you know, once he got into it, that that it wasn't rare at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, it just was overlooked for whatever reason. But what I did, I went back to old newspapers and in some cases local history books and court documents and found a lot of these cases that otherwise, uh, many of which had kind of been forgotten and put it together in a book that I tried to make be as much about the victims as I could so that their stories could be told. Mm -hmm. Well, David Fisk, I thank you for joining us. Uh, David's uh, latest book, 
Solomon Northup's Kindred, The Kidnapping of Free Citizens Before the Civil War. It's published by Prager. That's Solomon Northup's Kindred, The Kidnapping of Free Citizens Before the Civil War. And I also have a, a book signing on March 12th at the Book House at Stuyvesant Plaza. So you should watch for that. Okay, that's March 12th, Stuyvesant Plaza. They're located uh, in uh, in Albany or on the line between Albany and uh, and Gilderland. March 12th, what are the hours then? Uh, three o'clock. Three o'clock. Well, David, thanks very much for being with us, and sure. you have a good day. All right, you too, thanks. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. 